Not, of course, that we didn't finally make money on the thing. It was just about that time, you'll remember, that the Imperial Martian fleet decided that the third planet from Sol was getting a bit too powerful, and they started orbiting our planet with ultimatums. And while they were waiting for our answer, our government quietly purchased Artie's patent, made a few little adjustments on his cap twister, and the next thing the Martians knew, all their airlocks were busily unscrewing themselves with nothing outside them except hungry vacuum. It was also the last thing the Martians knew. So, Artie's ideas seemed to have their uses all right. Only, for some reason, Artie never thinks of the proper application for his latest newfound principle. That neat little disintegrator pistol carried by the foot soldiers in the Three-Day War, with Venus, remember Venus, was a variation on a cute little battery-powered device of Artie's, of which the original function had been to rid one's house of roaches. At any rate, at a damn good rate, in fact, the government always ended up paying Artie, and me as his partner Confederate cohort, and anything but modest fee for his patents. We weren't in the millionaire class yet, but neither were we very far out of it. And we were much better off than any millionaires, since Artie had persuaded the government to let us, in lieu of payment for another patent of his, for his Nixal, the thing that was supposed to convert seawater into something drinkable and did, gin, be tax-free for the rest of our lives. It was quite a concession for the government to make. But then, the government produced George Washington gin is quite a concession in itself. So, I guess you could say I keep listening to Artie Lindstrom because of the financial rewards. I must admit they're nice. And it's kind of adventurous, when I'm working on Artie's latest brainstorm, to let myself wonder what, since I generally scrap Artie's prognosis for the gadget's future, the damn thing will actually be used for. Or at least it was kind of adventurous until Artie started in on his scheme of three weeks ago, a workable anti-gravity machine. And now I'm feeling my first tremors of regret that I ever hooked up with the guy. Because, well, it happened like this. It looks great, I said, lifting my face from the blueprint and nodding across the workbench at Artie. What the hell does it do? Artie shoved a shock of dust-colored hair back off his broad, dull pink forehead and jabbed excitedly with a grimy forefinger at the diagram. Can't you tell, Bert? What does this look like? My eyes returned to the conglomeration of sketchy cones beneath his flailing finger, and I said, as truthfully as possible, A pine forest on a lumpy hill. Those, he said, his tone hurt as it always was when I inadvertently belittled his draftsmanship, are flywheels. Cone-shaped flywheels, I said. Why, for Pete's sake? Only, he said with specious casualness, in order to develop a centrifugal thrust that runs in a straight line. A centri... I said then sat back from the drawings, blinking. That's impossible, Artie. And why should it be? he persisted. Picture an umbrella with the fabric removed. Now twirl the handle on its axis. What do the ribs do?
I suppose they splay out into a circle. Right, he exulted. And if they were impeded from splaying out, if instead of separate ribs we have a hollow bottomless cone of metal, where does the force go? I thought it over, then said with deliberation, In all directions, Artie, one part shoving up to the right, one part up to the left, like that. Sure, he said, his face failing to fight a mischievous grin. And since none of them move, where does the resultant force go? I shrugged. Straight up, I guess. Then my ears tuned in belatedly on what I'd said, and a moment later I squeaked, Artie, straight up.